We are the Riverside chapter of the Messengers of Recovery. We have chapters in Southern California and Arizona. We're a bunch of guys that either rode with the devil or chased him. We're the kind of guys that if you saw us in a crowd, you would think that if he can get sober, then so can I. We decided to throw our chip into the hat and talk about our recovery in the hopes that you can learn from this podcast that you don't have to use or drink even if you want to. We are not A-A-N-A-C-A-S-A, and no one is from the damn DA. Once a week, we hope to bring you the message of recovery from speakers, panels, interviews, and sometimes just a meeting. If you'd like to find out more about us, go to our webpage, www.riversidechaptermor.com. There you can listen to the podcast, ask questions or comments in our forum section, browse our support recovery t-shirts, or just find out a little bit more about us. That's www.riversidechaptermor.com. Good evening. Welcome to the speaker meeting, Friday night speaker meeting. Samantha is a speaker tonight. Come on up. Hi, my name is Samantha. I'm an alcoholic. I am an alcoholic, but I also identify as an addict, and my sobriety date is May 14th of 2007. I'm going to tell a little bit about what it was like. I come from a, a family of, you know, and this isn't why I'm an alcoholic or an addict. It's, it's just, you know, it, it's a product of. I drank and I used because of the effect it produced, and that's, you know, I just wanted to numb out. I didn't want to feel. That became my solution. Growing up, I had a, a pretty, like, intense childhood. My mom and my dad separated a very, I was three years old, and they separated and they got together with my stepmother and my stepfather, and these are the the two people in my life that caused the most trauma in my life. I lived with my mom and my stepfather in Washington up until I was about 14 years old, but we would have like Friday night fight nights. It was crazy because my stepfather would go and dress up in drag. And um, they'd go to the bar, and it was just a really weird and strange dynamic. And they'd go get drunk, and they'd come home, and I'd be watching my, my sister and my brother. And they'd come home, and, and it was just really kind of chaotic. And on Friday night, we would uh, have Friday night fight night. And what we would do is we would just we would start boxing. And we were allowed to get all our aggression out on each other. So sisters and sisters and brothers and sisters and mother and father. And, and it was just an insane dynamic. And so we would just, as long as we didn't punch in the face or kick below the belt, we wouldn't get into trouble. But if we did either one of those, we were in a lot of trouble. So our house was the house to go to. All my friends would come to my house because I was allowed to call my mom a bitch. And I was allowed to, um, she would take us out. <laughs> I remember I was... 12 and 13 years old and she would take us out me and my friends and we'd go cruising looking for dudes <laughs> this there's this time that it reminds me of like that that scene in the breakfast club where he he's talking about his dad and how he, get, he gets a you know a carton of cigarettes and gets punched in the face and I remember with my mom like it was all about this dynamic of of a man um, really telling her you know her being with a man that dictated who she was as a woman and if you weren't in a relationship then you weren't a woman and so that was something in the very beginning that was kind of etched in my upbringing and kind of created you know my future dating life if you will um, at 14 years old I went to a party and this was like my really first party and really 
drunk, drunk. I was 14 and I went to this party and we were, I mean, we were drinking really crazy. And I had a .14 and the reason I know how much I had in my system is because I proceeded to go into the kitchen and uh, take a paring knife out of the uh, uh, silverware drawer and I hammered it into my wrist. All of the things that were happening to me, um, just to, there, any kind of abuse you can possibly think of um, has happened. My stepfather was um, abusing us in every which way you can think possible from the time, and I say us because my, you know, my sister's part of this story as well, um, and I have permission to share. Um, but all of the stuff that he was doing to my sister and I was coming to me as I was um, drinking. And I, I was getting, you know, the, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous talks about we pursue this melancholy activity and get a misshapen pleasure out of it. And so at that time, and I didn't know, have, I had no clue what AA was or the 12 steps or anything. But what I did know was that I was pursuing this melancholy activity. I was getting this misshapen pleasure out of it. And I was sitting in it and, and I was stewing in it and all of this bad stuff was kind of replaying in my head like a really bad movie. And that's when I proceeded to try to hurt myself. Um, while, I was while we were growing up, my dad and my mom would kidnap us from each other. So we would go stay with one and the other one would keep us and the police would be involved and it would be back and forth, back and forth. And so it was just a lot of discord. Um, after, the, uh, after I tried to hurt myself, they put me into a, you know, on a 5150. They ended up having my stepfather come pick, us, pick me up from this party and he drove around for a while before he took me to the hospital. So I'm bleeding and they're trying to talk me down and I'm saying, you know what you did, you know what you did. And nobody knew what the hell was going on and it was just chaos. And I ended up in, on a 5150 and I came to in this hospital and I it was all by myself. My grandmother called my uh, mom and my mom finally let me go live with my, my father. And at this time, the relationship that I had with my dad was like, he was my, um, you know, he was my saving grace because we grew up really, really poor in, in Washington. I remember like we wouldn't have water and, and we'd be stealing water from the city and, and toilets wouldn't be flushed for weeks and flies would be everywhere and we wouldn't have food and, and um, we wouldn't have electricity and we lived in this huge house, but it was like a flop house and it was just pretty unstable, unsafe environment. And, and I felt like that for a very long time. When I, you know, up till I was 14 years old, I felt like I was living in an unsafe, um, unstable environment. And I knew something was wrong, but every time social workers would co come and every time um, the school would call um, and, and we'd get, you know, we'd get questioned, you know, it was all about, you know, keep, you know, you keep your secrets. What stays in your family, um, what happens in your family stays in your family. And that's what I was taught. And so my grandmother talked my mother into allowing um, us to move with my dad. And my dad at that point was like that saving grace, like I was saying. And he, he had a job and he did, you know, a little bit better than my mom did. And he showed us like affection and love because at the time my mom, she wasn't really an affectionate, not at the time, she's never really been an affectionate person. She wasn't the kind of person that says, I love you. She wasn't like when you were, you know, sick or you know anything like that she would not see if you were okay or anything like that it was all about my mom my mom was all about her men and and that's the way it was and so moving with my dad was this you know what I thought was going to be this amazing thing and I finally got to be daddy's little girl but that wasn't quite the case and we went from one abusive home to another abusive home my stepmother what I didn't know you know what I know now was 
using and she was slamming dope and I, I didn't know that that's what she was doing until she later um, came to my house to buy it. She was really abusive emotionally and physically to my little sister. Um, she never really touched me because she tried once and that was it and I didn't let that happen and um, she was really abusive to my, my sister. Um, I remember one time she hit my sister and she was she was really smacking her in the face sitting on top of her and I finally she was pregnant with my little sister and I finally just picked her up by her throat and I told her I was going to kill her uh, if she ever touched my sister again and that that began our journey into my dad really discovering the things that was going on in the home because my dad would wear blinders just like my mom would wear blinders like they wouldn't believe the things that we would tell them because it was all about their women or their men and so he finally started seeing that and that moved us into my grandmother's house at 16 years old and this i have to tell you my grandmother is my my absolute saving grace for the first time in my life i'm 16 years old i live in a nice home i have food in my belly there's no worry about electricity i'm going to you know i'm doing well in school there's no drugs or alcohol involved well there was i guess my grandmother was an alcoholic she was drinking but she never never showed me that like i didn't see that with my grandmother but she showed us protection and safety and love and she was the epitome of what a woman should be and so she taught me how to be a lady and how to be a woman for the very first time in my life at 16 years old i felt safe and protected at 17 and a half i decided that you know i knew everything i well at 16 i got um, into the relationship with my kid's father at 17 and a half, you know, I went out and had a good time and tried to dope for the first time and, and I hated it. I hated it. I was sick. I was on the toilet and had the trash can in front of me. It was just the most awful feeling in the world and I never wanted to do it again. Um, but that alcoholic thinking and that addict thinking kicked in a year later. I thought, hmm, everybody talks about it and everybody talks about how good it is. You know, I must have got some bad stuff. I know this has got to be good, so I tried it one more time and I tried it one more time until it actually worked. And that is what makes me an addict, is because I was gonna try until it, it actually worked. You know, it actually did work and I was off and running. You know, 18 years old, I, I still had the beginning of my senior year to finish and I decided that um, I was gonna move out on my own and I moved in with my best friend's dad and, and I was still with my kid's father. My senior year, I don't know how I graduated, you guys, I was, you know, that peanut butter crank was in and my nose was bleeding and uh, you know, I missed three months of my high school year, but I did the homework. And I ended up graduating high school, and at 19 I got pregnant. And between, from the time 18 happened, when I really started my journey into this addiction, to about 31, I was off and running. I had a couple kids in between. From 19 to 22, I had a son, my son at 19, and I had my daughter at 23, I think. So my house, you know, I just wanted to do a little bit better. I wanted to be a better mother than my mother was to me. And so, um, you know, as long as I was doing a little bit better and showed my children, you know, affection when I thought they needed affection or I was, you know, financially taking care of my kids or there was a roof over their head. Um, as long as I was doing that, then I was doing a little bit better than my mother. And as long as I was doing that, then I was okay. And so I, in my own mind, was this functional addict. Um, and I lied about doing dope. I was just a pothead and, an al and, and, and I drank. I, and I drank for fun. Um, nobody knew the extent of what I was doing, at least to my way of thinking. Nobody knew the extent of what I was doing. Um, I was that closet tweaker for quite some time. You know, I always had a job. I paid rent. I took care of the kids. My, my kid's father didn't work. He stayed at home. You know, it was 
I felt justified. If you had a life like mine, if you, as long as I'm working, you know, I get to come home and I get to drink. And, you know, I had this little boy running around, cute little curly hair, and, and there's this like fog of, of smoke in my house with a bunch of beer bottles all over the place. And although I was the, uh, a little bit better than my mother was, I was still not emotionally there and still not motherly there, if you will, for my, my kids like I should have been. You know, when you're sitting there in the bathroom longer than you should be and your kids' are, little hands are underneath saying, Mommy, Mommy, and you're just saying, give me a little bit more time, and it's been an hour and a half, you know that there's, there's an issue. But I didn't see that there was an issue until I lost everything. I ended up losing my apartment, and this is when I really began, like, saw that, that my addiction was really affecting my life. And I don't know, I had to have been 24 at the time, 25, something like that. And I realized I started losing things and I was living in hotels to hotels with my kids and then I was losing jobs and couldn't keep them. And then I was um, staying with my ex's uh, parents in a one bedroom apartment. And we, lived, we slept on a pullout couch with my two kids and my ex. And it was just insane at the things that, that was happening in my life. And so I was always that geographic person, like if I can just get away from the dealer. If I can just get away long enough, I can stay sober. And what I didn't realize that the issue was, was me. Everything began and ended with me. And I didn't realize that I was the problem, not the substance that I put in my body. I began to run. I began to take, you know, take trips, you know, as the, the literature says, taking a trip, not taking a trip. You know, I ended up um, taking a trip to uh, Arizona and uh, 2002 I took a trip to Arizona I introduced my daughter to my dad and because um, that's where my dad ended up moving my son and I and my daughter took a good greyhound there I ended up staying sober off of meth for probably the whole time I was there and that was my goal but you know I smoked weed and I drank and we partied because my dad you know likes to party the person that was supposed to pick me up decided not to show up and so we had been there a month and I, and I really needed to get back to the place I was living. You know, I had to pay rent and all that good stuff. So I took a ride home from my sister's friend and um, he ended up coming back to bring my sister and he was in a full bed frontier truck and we um, got in this car. My daughter was really sick and we got in the car about one o'clock in the morning or 12 o'clock midnight, something like that. And we were headed back to um, Covina um, from, from Bullhead, right where the Night, uh, the 40 meets the the 15 right before that um, the guy I was moving my kids into their seat belts and the guy looks over and, and he said you know wait I have a better idea and he reared off the road and he started going down the wrong side of the road and his tailgate got stuck to the guardrail and took 80 feet of that guardrail out and because of the resistance it, it smashed us back onto the highway smashing out the windows throwing my children over a 50 foot overpass and him and I began to roll six times and um, I was thrown 60 feet. Um, I never hit my head or my face. Uh, and I say that because um, God shows up multiple times in my story. And, you know, I broke my, I shattered my wrist, I broke my back, I broke my hip, I broke my leg. Um, I was on the highway for 28 minutes before anybody showed up and I, didn't, I couldn't find my babies because I didn't know they were thrown over a 50 foot overpass. You know, I'm jumping up and down and trying to stop vehicles, and um, finally the, the guy who was driving, I hear him screaming, and he wouldn't shut up, and I remember telling him, shut up, shut up, please shut up. 
and it was it was dark like this and I remember just begging him to be quiet so I could go find my kids so I could hear if they were crying or anything and he just wouldn't shut up and as I'm trying to stop somebody um, I see a car and a, a semi and the car runs him over and then the semi runs him over and he he just stopped and it was just silent and finally that semi ended up stopping and I told him that my kids had been in the car with me because they would have never known my kids were in the vehicle. Finally help started showing up and I was conscious this whole time and um, you know the, the, the fire department comes up and says you know um, we found you know we found your son or I, I actually asked them did you find my kids and they said yes um, we found your your daughter and it doesn't look good and we found your son and he's moving and it looks like he's going to be okay and so they airlifted us. Um, that was July um, 6th of 2002 and my daughter was two years and four months. And um, July 8th of 2002 I had to make the decision to pull the plug on my daughter because um, she was brain dead. So to the, say the least, you know, I, I, I didn't know how to stay clean and sober with the death of a child. Like I, I couldn't that process that, and I and I because I didn't put her in a car seat or a seat belt, I was charged for the death of my child. That was something that I had to live with for you know. Well, that's something I have to live with every day because as a parent, you're 100% responsible for the safety of your child. And and I own and I own that today. I own the fact that I was responsible for her safety. You know, there's other factors involved that I can get into, but I have to own what I own because if I don't own this, then it, it'll still have power over me. I ended up uh, getting getting um, a misdemeanor charge. Um, I was looking at vehicular manslaughter. I was looking at six and a half years, and because of the, there was no alcohol, there was no, nothing in my system, and because of the, I wasn't driving in the, 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 the stuff of the case or whatever, the, um, they gave me a misdemeanor charge for, uh, gosh, I don't even know what it was at this time. Um, but it was a misdemeanor charge, um, but the, it was with the death of a child. And so, um, you know, that, and, I, and, and there's incarceration later in my story, and so that jacket doesn't carry very well when you're locked up. So I um, proceeded from the time my daughter passed away, you know, I proceeded to drink and use for the next five years and during that time from the time I was you know 25 26 years old until I was 31 um, I was I was arrested about 12 times my son had seen me um, arrested multiple times in front of him he was taken away from me he was um, put with his father uh, my son did live he had a, a ruptured spleen and um, he had some lack of motor skills in his hand because he heard it but um, he thankfully lived. Like I said, I had no coping coping skills at all whatsoever. I did not know how to deal with what that looked like. Um, so I drank and I used and I just wanted to die. And I was spiritually broken and I had no relationship with God. As a matter of fact, on that highway that night, um, I begged God not to take my babies. And because God took my babies, it was that crisis Christian, you know, if you get, if you do this, if you get me out of that, you know, um, I begged him not to take my babies and he, um, he took my daughter and I couldn't fathom that. I, I didn't understand why he didn't take a piece of crap like me and that's what I thought about myself at the time. And so for the next five, six years I proceeded to put myself in dangerous situations around dangerous people because I just wanted to die. I was that crazy chick, you know, if you play crazy people usually leave you alone. 
And so I was that crazy chick that would get up in any one of your guys' faces. Anybody. Didn't matter who. Guy, girl, doesn't matter. And I would go off on you. I would headbutt you in your nose. I would punch you in the throat. I would do whatever I could because I just wanted you to hurt me. I wanted to be taken out and nobody would do it. And I couldn't do it. I was chicken shit. I became homeless. I lived on the streets for a while. You know, couch surfed for a while. You know, I, I did a lot of dope at night because it, it's safer for a woman at night to stay up than it is for her to, to be asleep and so I walked the streets at night because it was safer. Um, I went from county to county. I had uh, cases in San Bernardino County, Riverside County. I had cases um, uh, in LA County. I, I did a lot of stuff in Fullerton so but I didn't get busted in Orange County thankfully. They do 85 percent of time um, so I didn't have to get do that. Um, you know, 12 times I got incarcerated. Um, the last time I got incarcerated was seven, uh, September 17th of 2006. At this time, I ended up finally finding a place that was safe back in Covina because I never shit in my own backyard. And so I did all of my geographicals. All my dirt was done in, in San Bernardino and Riverside. And, um, and I had a couple L.A. County cases, and that was for, you know, possession and paraphernalia and stuff. But... I was doing crazy stuff, you guys. There was, you know, liquor store robberies, stealing big rigs, things I'm not too proud of. You know, those incomprehensible, demoralizing behaviors that, that happen, at least I'll speak for myself, that I've done to get the things that I wanted to get, um, you know, and, and because I didn't really care, I didn't give a shit about myself. And, and so on September 17th, when I, um, I got ar arrested, hopefully for the last time, um, jury's still out on that one, I was looking at two and a half years and because I was a runner and I had been on the run already and so I had been on the run for a couple of years so I was looking at two and a half years of state time and I remember you know going to uh, sitting in my cell talking to my bunkie and um, I told her I can't wait to get out of here I'm, I'm just gonna you know I'm gonna smoke a joint and I'm gonna do this and I'm gonna do that and she goes you're gonna be back then and she was looking at a, a murder charge because I was for some reason I was always on uh, in maximum security and and you know, always locked down 23 hours, and, and I don't understand, like, really, I didn't do anything that bad, um, but I was always subjected to that, and, and I'm so grateful I was, because this bunkie I had, um, she really spoke truth into my life, and I really wish I knew where she was today, um, but she spoke truth in my life and said, if you continue the way you're, you're you know, using, and, and even if you go back and you smoke weed, you're going to be back here, and I'm like, nah, no, I'm not, no, I'm not, and, uh, and I sat there and I told her my story and, and she said, yeah, that's some sad shit. What are you going to do about it? And um, I went and called my grandmother and, I, and she's like, I'm not bailing you out. And I said, I know, I'm not asking you to, but I'm scared and I, I, got, I have a problem. And it was in that moment for the very first time I admitted to my innermost self and, and somebody else that I had a problem, that I was an alcoholic, that I was an addict. And I finally, and my, my grandmother, I have the utmost respect for, and I never wanted her. She was the kind of woman that if she said she was disappointed in you, I'd rather her beat me than tell me she was disappointed in me. And so um, I never wanted her to be disappointed, and I finally got really honest with her, and I said, you know, Grandma, I don't know what to do. I'm looking at this amount of time, and I'm so scared to deal with my daughter's death sober, and I don't know what to do. And she said, you know, go pray for peace of heart and peace of mind. And I hated God. I, I mean, I walked around with this Bible. And I don't, this Bible, you guys, has been through hell with me. I was homeless, and this Bible is the only thing that made it. <laughs> and this, you know, I would read the Bible. And, you know, God meets you where you're at. Because I would read this Bible, 
and I was loaded and I would mock. I would mock what was going on in the Bible. I'd be like, look at this fool Peter, la la la, look at Paul. And, and I'd be mocking what was happening in the Bible. But, you know, God met me where I was at. And so, you know, I heard for the first time what my grandmother was saying. And she's been a Christian for a long time, but she never, ever, ever made me go to church or made me think things. She always just showed me by loving me. And so she said, go in my, in my cell and pray for peace of heart and peace of mind. And, and I did that. And I went and I prayed for peace of heart and peace of mind. And I cussed God out and I was angry and I was upset. And, and I can't tell you, you know, the book of Alcoholics Anonymous talks about this. You know, Bill was having this, this spiritual experience. And he said he feels this white light on his face. And, and um, it was similar to that. And, and I know, like for me, you know, God is a huge part of my life. And... I was sitting there in my cell and I cussed him out and then, you know, I asked him into my heart and I felt this like this warmth over my body and I was still looking at, at two and a half years and but in that moment I knew that everything was gonna be okay and it didn't matter. It didn't matter if I was gonna do two and a half years or not. I had gotten into acceptance about that, you know, and I knew that God was with me. And so I actually went to court the next day and, and um, God was with me all right because I got let out on house arrest and $4,000 of restitution and like 80 something hours of uh, community service. And that began my journey into Alcoholics Anonymous. My um, sobriety date's not till May 14th of 2007. So I, I did get out, gosh, in the beginning of October or at the end of September. Those 80 hours of community service that I had to do, I'm looking at this list and I see this place called The Other Club. And I was thinking, because I had no idea about Alcoholics Anonymous, had no clue. And I was thinking it was a club. And I was like, oh, cool, because I'm still smoking weed and I'm still drinking. And so I'm like, yes, I can go do my community service and I can be buzzed. This is great. And um, so I, I pull up to this other club and, um, and this, this, this lady, and she gives me permission to, to use her name. Um, Paula was outside and, and this other guy, Glenn, who rest his soul, was outside and, and you know, I start talking to them and I'm waiting for Izzy, the manager, and, and I'm sitting there talking to them and I'm telling them, you know, oh, woe is me because I used my daughter's death, you guys, and I, you know, I'm not proud of this, but I used my daughter's death and all the things that happened in my life as an excuse to continue to use and drink and to get things from people. Don't you know? You're supposed to feel sorry for me, so give me some more dope. Don't you know you're supposed to feel sorry for me, so give me a place to stay. And so I proceeded to try to manipulate the Glenn and, and um, Paula um, with that same sad story. And yeah, sure, it's a sad story, but Paula looked at me and, and she's straight, <laughs> and, and I come from the streets and I, I was still like fresh off the street. And she looks at me and she says, so what, everybody's got a story. And I was like, what, this fucking bitch? Like, are you serious? And she said, yeah, everybody's got a story. And she goes, what are you gonna do with it? And, and so I stayed on a resentment for a minute. Like I, I, I was resentful and I was upset. And, and you know, that woman probably saved my life because that kept me in Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, I, I sat there and I cleaned ashtrays and I cleaned toilets and I did all that happy horse shit. One of, one of my first sponsors, she, she was the manager at the time of, or the assistant manager and I was working with her doing community service and she said, why don't you just go sit in the meeting? And so she allowed me to sit in meetings for my community service. And this is where God shows up again. Like he, he continued to show up in my life. Like I wouldn't have done that. Like I was okay cleaning toilets. I didn't want to hear that shit. All you guys were full of it, right? Like I was okay cleaning toilets. 
But I started going in and I started listening to what people said. And I'm like, you know, something's got to be off. There, This happiness thing, not being loaded, I can't even picture that. I can't fathom that. I don't understand that. And seeds were planted and I started th- started seeing things change. And because I wasn't doing dope anymore, I started just, you know, developing this relationship with my son. What I didn't realize, you guys, is I just wanted to be a mom. And that helped me get sober. I just wanted to be a better mother. And um, what I didn't realize on that highway that day is that not only did my son lose his sister, but he lost his mother too. And I realized that in that cell that day. And so um, my son and I started having developing this relationship and it was Mother's Day. Um, we went to a dance and I hadn't gotten sober yet. We went to this dance and I'm sitting there, I had started going to meetings and I'm, I'm sitting there with my son and we're dancing and he's smiling and we're having a genuine good time and I'm not loaded. And he's looking at me and he's like, I see this look in his eye of just, his eyes of just like being comforted and, and, want to, and, and being happy he's with his mom. And that is the only thing that I wanted. And I knew with everything that I was that I, I needed to get sober because I needed to be a mom. And so it was Mother's Day. I drank my last MGD. I smoked my last blunt. Somebody told me, if you don't think you're an alcoholic, why don't you just stop? Try. Okay. And so I did, and I realized at 3 o'clock every day, I, when I'd drink my beer and I'd have my blunt, at 3 o'clock every day after I put it down, I was irritable, restless, and discontent, which made me realize I was an alcoholic, which made me realize I had much more problems than just the substance, that I was the problem and I needed to do something. And so I started going to these meetings by myself, and I started doing some stuff in there. And I, I'd like to say that I did the, you know, the steps uh, right away, and I didn't. I'd like to say I didn't get into relationships right away, but I did. In, you know, he, because, because that is what I was taught, you know, a man is who, who being with a man is who, who made a woman. And if I wasn't with a man, then I wasn't a woman. And so I proceeded to get into relationships because that is what I knew because I needed to be a woman. You know, the first year of my recovery, I can't say that was the easiest. Four months in my, the, the guy who saved my life and allowed me to move into his house was dying of bone cancer. And, you know, I got to take care of him and, um, administer all his pain meds and all of that and you know on probation and and watch him you know die and my son got taken away from his father so I had to pre- I, I proceeded to have to do all kinds of things to get him back because I didn't do those things before and so I ended up being a part of a program and um, then I got busy and and the the, the roots of the program really took uh, the spirit of the program really took root in my life and um, I started doing some stuff and you know a lot of great things happened in recovery I got you know I went back to college and I got a degree in human services and um, my son and I had a beautiful relationship you know he had his journey with substances and raised his hand just like we do at 16 years old you know but I was able to be there and walk alongside him and show him the way to a sober life unfortunately he didn't stay that way you know I got to work with other women, you know, I got married in this program, you know, and it was great. And then it wasn't. Um, I got divorced in this program, you know. The real part of how this program works, you know, and, and, you know, the fruits of the spiritual principles in my life really showed up in the last three years. Because that relationship that I had built with my son, you know, at 21 years old, or right before my son's 21st birthday, he ended up um, deciding he wanted to, you know, fly the coop and he got into his own apartment and my son was a you know pothead and he was a drinker and he got into his apartment with this this girl and you know it was good for a while and then it was just chaos and he was I could go and I'd clean his house and bring him groceries and there's bottles everywhere and 
you know, he was always smoking weed and, and he's a good kid, you know, and I'd have lunch with him every week and, um, but he was drinking a lot and, and he was around, you know, you know, unsavory characters like we all do. Um, September 2nd of uh, 2018, I drove up like I did every single week and it was a Sunday after church and I drove up to, um, to go pick up my son for, for lunch and, and I had just spoken to him the night before and um, there's caution tape all around his apartment. And I jump out of my car and I'm running up to like the police, you know, I went to go see because I, you know, what did my son do is all I can think. So I went to go see if he was in the back of the police car and, and you know, I'm confused and I see his friends and I see the look on their face and I'm, I'm just, you know, at, at a loss and, and there's this eerie feeling and um, the detective pulls me aside and he said, who are you? And I tell him, you know, my son lives here and my name's, and I tell him who I am and tell him who my son is. And he said, ma'am, um, I'm sorry, but we did everything we could. We found your son with a bullet wound in his head and uh, we, we couldn't, we couldn't save him. And they took him to Arrowhead Hospital, which was the hospital I happened to be in when I was in the car accident. And they took him to Arrowhead. And, um, um, you know, I, I can't tell you in that moment, the first person that I called wasn't, you know, my sponsor. It wasn't the dealer. It was, you know, it was my pastor. And, um, and I proceeded to tell my pastor what was going on. And, and I started praying. And, uh, you know, my first thought wasn't to go get loaded. My first thought was like, okay, so I've, I've got to figure out what to do. And I've got to, you know, talk to people. And I've got to plan this funeral and, and what happened. And so it was a homicide investigation from September to February of 2019. And come to find out what, what actually happened was that my son was intoxicated and he was playing with a weapon and it was accidentally discharged and he shot and killed himself. And, uh, you know, I want to be angry and I want to be mad at, you know, the person who's, you know, not here. And, and so I've had to work through some of that stuff. And a couple months later, um, it was at December, first week of December, you know, I was, mar I was still married at the time and, you know, um, I found out my husband was having inappropriate conversations with women and I asked him to get help and on Christmas Day he said he didn't want to and so I left and we separated and uh, divorced January of 2020. And, and so for, from, from January of um, 2019, um, for about six months, I stopped working and I and I just sat still and I knew what it, the, the death of a child felt like loaded. And I knew what the death, the death of a child felt like sober and I knew I did not want to feel that loss. And I didn't, I, I, it was dark. The death of a child and using was dark. Death of a child, still dark. But I knew that I could not pick up and I could not use because I would be dead right now. And I thank God every single day that I, got sober for my son but I stayed sober for myself because I would be loaded right now and I wouldn't I wouldn't have made it to this meeting tonight you know the spiritual principles of this program honesty hope faith courage integrity willingness brotherly love justice you know service all of these spiritual principles you know took root with all the work I had done in, you know, through these, these 14 and a half years, at the time it was 11 years, all the work I had done those 11 years had really took root into my life because I, I can be honest with you, it wasn't, it wasn't the death of my son that was going to take me out. It was the resentment I had towards my ex-husband that was going to take me out. I, I hated the man.
And I'm not a person that holds hate in my heart at all. And I hated him. And I sat there for the next six months and I sat there with resentment and bitterness and anger. And I'm um, just, in, I was infuriated. And I couldn't understand how somebody could do that and walk away, you know, and uh, that's his own stuff. But um, I couldn't fathom that. I couldn't understand that. And I was I, I was bitter and resentful. And it was a poison that was just like a cancer that was just eating me alive. And uh, there was one time I was getting ready. Um, I was getting ready and I was I was sitting there. I was looking in the mirror and I looked over in the bathtubs right there. And I got, I got this flash and I saw myself sitting in the bathtub with my wrists slit open. And I knew in that moment that I was under attack and that this was a spiritual battle and if I didn't do something about this resentment and, that, and this bitterness that I was gonna die. And, and I had to do something about it. And so I got back to basics, I got busy again and I stopped sponsoring women and I hated women and I hated you and I hated AA and I hated NA and I hated, I hated everything and everybody. And so um, I ended up getting back to doing the things that I needed to do that I knew that worked. And things started happening again in my life. I started giving away what was freely given to me. I started doing the next indicated thing. I started doing contrary action and I got back to basics one more time. And slowly but surely the forgiveness in my heart began to um, infiltrate and, and I was able to, um, to forgive and actually make an amends to this man. Didn't go very well. But I did my part. My, 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 my side of the street is clean. And so, you know, I think that the biggest lesson through this 14 and a half years of, of being, you know, in, this, in, in recovery um, has been the last three years. Because the, the, the book talks about the acid test. Can we sustain under you know, fire? Can we maintain sobriety? And this last three years has been just this journey of, because I've had physical sobriety. That wasn't, you know, it, I was either going to spiritually die or I was going to physically die. It wasn't about really, it wasn't really about me going off and running one more time because I was going to, it would be literally one more time because I wouldn't have made it back. You know, um, it was it was about that emotional sobriety. It was about me being, you know, the woman that God in, intended me to be. And so, you know, I, I actually stayed single for, and I'm still single, but I stayed single for, I didn't even think about dating or anything like this. And the reason I bring this up is because this was all I would have been thinking about um, prior. But what I did was I worked on the, the person because I had to uncover the labels and, and, and fight this marinated piece of meat between my ears. I had to work on the labels that had been placed on me and that I had placed on myself. You know, I was a mother. I was a wife. I was a, alcohol, you know, a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I was a woman in AA. I was a Christian woman. I was all of these things, but I never was introduced to who Samantha was. And so this journey of the last three years, I've uncovered and discovered and discarded some of the negative attributes that I don't like about myself. And I've embraced the positive attributes that I do like, which has uncovered the person, you know, that, I, that God has intended me to be and which has enabled me to, to be able to stay single so that I can really introduce myself to whomever it may be later on down the line, right? Of who, who I want in my life. And, um, and I don't need, you know, the biggest blessing is, is I know with every bit of personhood that I am, womanhood that I am, is I don't need a man 
to tell me who I am or that dictates who I am as a woman. And I know that might, might not sound much to you, but for me, being with a mother who, who put men before her children and a father who put women before their children, and that's who kind of run, ran their life, this is a huge step in the journey of finding out who I am as a woman and just being comfortable in the uncomfortable and being okay being single, and, and that's cool. You know, I am honored and blessed to be able to sponsor some amazing, amazing women that teach me things every single day and that if it weren't for the women that I've sponsored or that I'm currently sponsoring, I would probably be a miserable mess. But I continue to stay in the present moment and I get to give back. And I'm so blessed by that, you know. I have opened up a company and, you know, I, I work with people in re-entry. I go back into the jails that I've been incarcerated in and I get to come home. Like, I go in willingly. And that's amazing to me. You know, I get to work with probation and I get to work with judges and I get to work with all of these people that said that I am, am nothing. That I would, like, I was a reject. Um, during the process of the six months, and I'll close with this, but during the process of the six months, um, my ex-husband and I actually uh, were talking about um, doing in vitro um, prior to all of this coming out. Um, but I would have had to do it because I'm going to be 46, so I would have had to do, done it at that time. I would have had to do it because um, 42 significantly, 43 decreases your chances, blah, blah, blah. And I only had enough money to do it once. And so I would have had to have done it while I was grieving my son because I was 42 when he passed. And so it wouldn't have been healthy. And so I decided against that and I prayed on it and I said, what do, you, what do you think about adopting? And there's enough kids out there that really need homes. And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and so obviously that didn't work out between us. But um, during that six months, I put in paperwork because I had a, you know, I had a significant record and I knew it was going to take some time. And, and so I put in paperwork through the Department of Children uh, Family Services. It took about eight months because they had to do interviews and they had, I had a character reference letters and and my record still wasn't dismissed. It's all dismissed now, but it wasn't dismissed yet. I did the footwork and I said, okay, God, if you approve me, I'll do whatever you want me to do. And he came to me in a dream and it was teens. And I'm like, no, I'm not gonna, no, that's not happening. And, um, you know, God has always showed up. You guys, I'm telling you, God has always, with those God wings, he's like, I got you, I got you. And it was Christmas of 2000 and, um, it was Christmas 2020. I get the phone call from the lady from the, the Department of Children and Family Services because she's like, I don't think you're gonna get it because of all your charges, but we're gonna just do it anyways because you seem like a you know a decent human being. And so she did. She put it through and she let the criminal team figure it out. And I got the call right before Christmas and she said, You know what? I don't know what happened, she said, but you got approved. And I can't tell you, man, I don't speak in tongues, but in that moment I was like, Oh, thank you, Jesus, and I started talking like it was crazy. I was thanking the Lord, and she goes, you better preach it, you better say who it belongs to, and, and so she said I got approved, and then um, a couple days after I got my divorce papers that were final, I get this paperwork saying that I got approved, and um, July of 2020, shortly, uh, you know, COVID hit, and it was insanity, and I'm wondering what the hell's going on, and I, I make a phone call in August, and by July 26, I had a, a beautiful 12-year-old girl placed in my home. She turned 13 in August, and I just signed legal guardianship papers. She uh, will be with me forever. And uh, um, 
you know, it's a journey for sure. I just suddenly have a teenager, you know, and, and I've always lived by the motto, go big or go home, but damn it. You know, and I get to pour into her mother and I get to pour into her father who's in prison now. And, and I get to be empathetic and compassionate because I've been there before. And I get to do these things as a result of the work that I've done in this program. And I get to be honest and I get to be real. And I also get to, you know, this little girl's not getting away with anything she thinks she is. She's like, your, your son messed it up for me. And, you know, uh, yeah, he probably did because you're not getting away with anything. You know, Lauren is her godmother and, um, you know, people get to pour into her. You know, Chad, the way he is with the kids, it's just amazing. And, you know, people get to pour into this little girl who, you know, potentially would have been in the system for the rest of her life. And God has granted me another chance at being a mother. And I love this little girl as if she was my own. And I didn't know that I was going to have the capacity because I was fearful of that. Whether I was going to have the capacity to love another child that deep. But I do. And God's given that to me. Um, I don't know if you're new and I don't know about the time. I didn't even do that. I'm sorry. But I don't know if you're new to this program. I don't know if you're older in this program. I don't know what you're doing. But it is about, no matter how much time you have, I have today. I'm no further from a drink, hit, fix, or pill than anybody else because I can go out tomorrow and use. If I'm not spiritually fit and if I'm not emotionally, if I don't have emotional sobriety, then I'm fucked. There's no sugarcoating that. I am so, so grateful for the people before me and the people, you know, you know, after me. Because had it not been the people that surround me and keep me at the center of this, this thing we call recovery, I would be dead. And so for, for that, I thank you guys for asking me to come out here and share. And I thank you so much for, uh, for all of you being here. Wow. That was it for tonight from the Messengers of Recovery, Riverside. Make sure you tune in next week.